Hanko runs a shop that sells Vietnamese sandwiches and bubble tea on a corner in Brooklyn. It's a neighborhood favorite. Lots of tables and sunlight streaming in through big windows, crowded most of the day. Not long ago, a customer brought in a menu from a shop that opened up just four blocks away to show to Hanko. Yeah, when I saw this, I was really shocked. Okay, so here's your menu. Just read yeah. the list of sandwiches from top to bottom. Classic, grilled pork, grilled chicken, sardine, shredded chicken, tofu. Now uh, let's go to this other one and read. Okay. Classic, grilled pork, grilled chicken, sardine, shredded chicken, tofu. Or go to the list of bubble teas. Here's Hanko's menu. Original bubble tea, almond, taro, honeydew, coconut, coffee, Thai tea. And the competitor, Henry's. Original bubble tea, almond, taro, honeydew, coconut, coffee, Thai. Of the 42 sandwiches, salads, appetizers, and drinks on Hanko's menu, all 42 are on Henry's. In the exact same order, laid out in the same places on the menu. Most of them 25 to 50 cents cheaper. And when you hold the two menus side by side, it's the same font, same colors, maroon letters on white. The two menus look like copies, except for the name on top. I guess they're being lazy. They don't want to be creative. They're just like, you know what? Let's just copy and paste. The three people who owned this new place had all worked for Hanko at some point or another. There was Henry, there was Henry's mom, and there was Wei. Hanko says in retrospect, they were always asking, how do you make this? What's the recipe for that? And at the time, he thought they were just trying to be helpful until they opened up their own place and he put it all together. For two nights after he saw the menu, Hanko couldn't sleep. He had trouble breathing. He wondered if he was having a heart attack. He was really upset. I mean, even though if you get my recipe, you stole my recipe, or you didn't stole it, let's say you just know it, I teach you, right? You know it. You work here for many years, you know the recipe. You, you start your own business, you open across the street, next block. I mean, that's your choice. I, I, have, I can't do nothing about it. But then, you know, you know, that's how it is. But, you know, you, know, you don't have to be, like, identical, you know, do something different. You know? In other words, why you confuse customers? Because customers come to me, oh, is, are you, is that the same as Hanko's? It has hurt Hanko's business. Sales are down 10 to 15%, he said. Meanwhile, up the street at Henry's, things were going so badly that Henry and his mom left after just a few months. Now Wei ran the place alone. So I marched up in the street to see what Wei had to say about all this. Because Vietnamese uh, sandwiches and bubble tea, you know it's been years now that they've been spreading everywhere. Not just in Brooklyn. They've been popping up all over the country. You can buy Vietnamese banh mi sandwiches in Biloxi, Mississippi. You can buy bubble tea in Idaho. With all that potential, all that opportunity out there, why would Wei and Henry imitate this one restaurant just four blocks from them so slavishly? all the way down to the font on the menu. Why not just move further away and do something different? And when I got to Henry's to ask all this, it's a tiny, tiny little shop. What happened next was very, very strange. Okay, there was a man and two women behind the counter, and they swore they had never heard of anybody named Way. No, 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 they said. This place had a new owner, some guy from Queens named Joey. Does anyone work here who used to work at Hanko's? I brought a Cantonese translator with me because I'd been told that Wei's English wasn't so great. Wei's Chinese, not Vietnamese. Yes, I used to deliver deliver uh, food at Hanko's. And, and what's your name? Me. The guy behind the counter got a funny look on his face. Ning, I'm Ning. Ning, L I N. Ning. 
Yes, Ling told me he had worked at this place since the very beginning, seven months before, but no, he had no idea who this Wei was. He'd never heard that name. When I asked him if he knew anything about how they came up with the menu, if they stole from Hanko's, Ling would say things that seemed to indicate that he had no problem with copying a menu. If you're like a Kung Fu student, if if the master didn't teach you how how you're supposed to learn, and then in the very next breath he would say, But I won't copy them. We do our own thing, they do their own thing. There's a difference between the two restaurants, and um, we, we just made a new menu. We'll take a look at it. And in fact, the new menu was glossy and multicolored and didn't look like Hanko's menu at all. Though, of course, it still contained most of the items from Hanko's menu. Stop talking about the past, Ling kept saying. We don't know about the old menu and how it was made. We only know about now. Back out on the street, uh, the translator, his name was Lee, and I, we, we couldn't figure out exactly what just happened. Ling had told us that he thought it would be perfectly acceptable if they copied from Hanko, but then he also said that they didn't copy from Hanko. Also, somehow, he had never heard of Wei. None of them had, even though Ling had been at the restaurant since the day that Wei and Henry started it seven months before. None of it made any sense. And it was hard to let it go. They don't know who Wei is, apparently. But Ling worked here with Wei. He didn't know the name Wei, but he knew the old owner, whoever the old owner was. He just was avoiding the question whenever I mentioned Wei. Do you think he's Wei? I don't think so. (laughs) That would be funny if he was. But he did take a while to answer his his own name, so I don't know if that's really his name. Let's take his picture. I pull out my digital camera, walk back into the restaurant, stand right in front of the counter facing Ling and the two other employees. I say nothing, point the camera, I shoot, I walk out. Four minutes later, I'm back down the street inside the place where I started, the first restaurant, Hanko's. I show Hanko the photo and ask if he recognizes anybody. That's Wei with the white hat. And I've never seen this one. This is probably his wife. So... We head back four blocks in the other direction to uh, the Henry store. And without the tape recorder on, I explain to Ling that I know he's actually Wei. And I tell him I'm not trying to embarrass him. But please, can he just explain to me why he and Henry decided to knock off Hanko's menu so thoroughly and completely? He tells me, basically, that it was Henry's idea. It was not hard to find Henry. He's now opened the third Vietnamese sandwich shop in the neighborhood, six streets and two avenues from Hanko's, the first one. Henry's place is called Home and sells, big surprise, the same sandwiches and bubble teas as the other two places, more or less. And Henry did not see what the big deal was with copying a menu. All restaurants take from each other, he said. You'll have two Japanese restaurants across the street from each other, and they'll both sell the same items. That's how it always goes. He doesn't feel like he stole anything from Hanko. In fact, Hanko, the guy, you know, with the first shop in the neighborhood, Hanko will tell anybody who's curious that he got the idea for his place by visiting another Vietnamese sandwich shop in New York, one called Nikki's. Sandwiches and bubble tea are this unlikely million-dollar idea, but it started at one shop and then it spread like a virus through Brooklyn, infecting one small aspiring businessman after another, leaving a trail of jealousies and ambitions and hurt feelings in its wake. None of these three guys are talking to each other anymore. Apparently, a million-dollar idea can do that, even if the idea does not make you a million dollars. 
But today on our radio show, we have stories of million-dollar ideas, some of them with enough juice in them that they're actually worth actual millions, some of them only good enough to turn your life upside down and wreak havoc as you chase after them. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our show in four acts today. Stay with us. One, going up. There's a whole world of engineers and investors who are actively trying to invent million-dollar ideas. And in that world, there's something called an elevator pitch, which is uh, pretty much exactly what you would guess it is. It's the pitch that you would make for your product, for your idea, if you bumped into a rich investor on an elevator. Figure you have 60 seconds. What's the vital stuff that will convince them? What are the details that you leave out? This is such a specific skill, apparently. MIT actually has a contest for its students and faculty with thousands of dollars in prizes for elevator pitches. There's a little video on YouTube encouraging people to pitch in this contest. She's not gonna slow down. She'll be the Google in her hometown. Damn, that's a sexy pitch. A sexy pitch. Damn, that's a sexy pitch. Get it? Tim Rowe was a judge at this year's Elevator Pitch Contest. He's an investor, and he runs what he describes as basically a big frat house filled with startup companies called the Cambridge Innovation Center. He told me elevator pitches actually do happen in real life. He's even witnessed one in an elevator. But usually they go like this. You're walking through the halls at, say, MIT, and you see a professor there, and the professor's standing with a visitor, and the visitor turns out to be a famous venture capitalist, right? And the professor turns to you and says, oh, Joe... You know, uh, this is so-and-so. You know, he's looking around for interesting things to invest in. And this is your moment, right? Wait, wait, wait. And you've actually seen this happen? This happens literally every day in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There are probably 100 venture capitalists circling, looking for the next thing to invest in. And so it's these chance meetings that it, 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 it happens regularly. The basics of a good elevator pitch, he says, are straightforward, talk in a way your grandparents could understand. Don't expect the listener is an expert or knows scientific jargon. That's apparently a challenge for lots of engineers. You also have to explain how you and your team are qualified to actually accomplish the thing you're setting out to do. You have to prove that you're an expert in the field. If you've got Nobel laureates working with you, it would be a good time to mention it. And finally, engage the listener's emotions. Grab them from the start. At the MIT competition, there was a pitch for a medical procedure that Tim says did that really well with a very simple gimmick. Here is the pitch. Uh, There was a space theme to the competition, so you'll hear each pitch begins with a countdown. Three, two, one. This year, Harrison Ford turned 67, putting him at a high risk for prostate cancer. If tomorrow he was to be sadly diagnosed with this disease, he would discover that he has two main treatment options. Either undergo surgery to remove his prostate, rendering him impotent, or do nothing but be protected or be comforted by having sex. At Hydrangle Systems, we don't want the Indiana Joneses of the world to have to choose between life and sex. That is why our team of biomedical engineers at the Johns Hopkins University has designed and created the Apex. The Apex is a probe-like device that is used during, during minimally invasive freezing procedures to protect the sex nerves surrounding the prostate and maintain patient potency. Let me just let me just pause this for a second. So I heard that, and I wondered, well, how did poor Harrison Ford get dragged into this pitch? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but if you took Harrison Ford out of it, it would lack that sort of uh, that moment that causes you to 
sit up and listen. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know that Harrison Ford ever had this uh, procedure. You know, I think it really had nothing to do with him, but it was a wonderful device, and it, and it really, you know, probably everyone in the room remembers that pitch a, a year later. The prostate cancer treatment market is worth $3.4 billion. The Apex will start generating revenue at the end of year two and is so transformative that the acquisition of Hydrangle Systems at any stage will allow for a quick return on investment. So men and women, don't let prostate cancer be your temple of doom. Invest in Hydrangle Systems and we'll let you stay as active as Indiana Jones. There's one more element that, that I really think is important in a pitch and made the difference between the pitch you just heard and the one that won that competition. And that is that what you're doing has to matter. Matter, you mean like there's a lot of customers out there? Well, no. Um, it, that's good. Um, you know, big makes money. That's important. That's mattering in one way. But I think there's so much going on in the world today. There are so many choices we have about what to spend our time on that we tend to put a little extra energy into the ones where we say, you know, this is a problem that really needs attention, right? Yeah. So, um, so I worry about Harrison Ford's sex life somewhat. That matters, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but there are probably problems out there that matter more. Really? It's like you're almost saying that, that people who invest in stuff want to make the world a better place as part of their investing and, and that you have to take that into account. There are certainly investors who care only about the money, but I think that of the investors I know, they would they would prefer to have an investment which both makes money and does something exciting that makes the world a better place. That's probably why most of us who do investing got into that. Really? Didn't people get into investing to make money? I, I'm talking about the investors who invest in new ideas, the in crazy new ideas, if you will. Uh, I think if you're just purely interested in making money, you'll probably end up on Wall Street. Right. And if you're hunting around the halls of MIT meeting with the, you know, the head of the chemistry department, um, that kind of person is a little bit of a quirkier person. And, and in my experience, is someone who uh, is, is more about the, the outcomes uh, and not solely about the economics. Well, then let's play, let's play the winner. And let me, ask, uh, let me ask you, what is this person doing uh, right? Let's, let's hear the pitch. Three, two, one. The most widely used manufactured material on the planet is concrete. On average, each person uses more than three tons of concrete a year. Unfortunately, concrete manufacturing process contributes to more than 10% of carbon dioxide emissions worldwide. However, we have been able to develop a concrete that not only cuts the carbon dioxide emissions by half, but also it is five times stronger than normal concrete. Our design is unique because we have discovered how to change the very nanostructure of concrete. This approach is environmentally friendly, and at the same time, it reduces the cost of concrete manufacturing by 40%. Given that the U.S. market for concrete is over $100 billion a year, this makes... Actually, let me stop so far. So what have you heard so far that, that's working? Okay. So, oh, it's just unbelievable. So first of all, he's saying this is a $100 billion market, right? So it's a lot of money. It's, you know, the greed gene, the, the greed glands are flowing here, right? Mm -hmm. um, second of all, he's saying our product is cheaper than what's out there now. The single biggest motivator for a business or anybody to, to use a new product instead of the existing product is because it's cheaper. So that's a, that's a quick way into the market. Okay, so it's cheaper. Second of all, if he said it's better but it's not cheaper, that's trickier, right? Yeah. Um, you know, because, eh, well, do I need it better, right? Mm -hmm. so, so first thing is cheaper. The second thing is it's also better. 
He said it's five times stronger than existing concrete. Wow. And then he gives you the it matters line, right? He says that 10% of global production of carbon dioxide emissions is from concrete. And then here he gets to the point where he, where he has the qualifications of the people that, that they're a team who can actually pull this off. We are a team of five researchers, including three superstar professors at MIT. I myself am a last year PhD student working on innovative concrete, and we are looking for two more passionate people to complete our team for financial aspects. What are, now, you hear a lot of pitches. What, what are some of the weirdest pitches you've ever heard? Well, um, this is actually very recent in the last few weeks. Um, and so I hope someone listening to this program uh, is enthralled with this idea and somehow finds the entrepreneur and invests in them. We didn't. Um, but this uh, entrepreneur is uh, probably has a number of dogs and has uh, a backyard. And the question is what to do with all the dog uh, remainders uh, left in the backyard. Uh, and uh, what they invented was a, uh, a cup um, that you can put over the dog remainder, um, and uh, it liquefies uh, the, the poop so that it will flow into uh, the ground and, uh, and I guess also fertilize the ground. And the, the, the way they describe doing it is that they have a series of high-speed knives which move uh, through the space underneath this cup, through the poop in every possible direction, while, I think if I understood it correctly, spraying the poop uh, at, at high speed with, with water, something of that nature. Ew. Well, you say that, but if you have this problem, wouldn't you want to make the poop go away? I don't know. There's just something so disgusting about that, about this device. Then you have to, like, clean out the poo-encrusted device afterwards. Well, I think actually the high-speed water actually cleans it. So I think it cleans itself. Ah. So th- th- I don't know why, but that just seems really disgusting to me. Why, why didn't you invest it in it? Um, <laughs> you know, um, it, I think maybe that's one of the things that it didn't seem like uh, something that we wanted to uh, bank our futures on. Uh yeah. <laughs> We'd probably have to go to conferences and demonstrate this on a regular basis or something. You know, it, it, Ira, the, the, the inventiveness of people in this country is just completely remarkable. I've lived all wait, wait, over wait, the world. I want to stay on the poo for a second. Okay, I feel sorry. like what you're saying is very uplifting, but, uh, but okay. I want to bring us back okay. to poo. All right. Um, you, you, know, you know the problem with this – what you're saying, that that's exactly the problem with this, is that if you got into business with these people, you'd be talking about poo all the time. Like your life would be filled with these poo discussions and you'd be constantly having to evoke the image in your head of poo dissolving in underneath this cup over and over. Like that, that image would be in your head like every day. You'd have to think about that. And like who wants to be in that business? Um, well, you know, it's, uh, people are in the septic tank emptying business, right? I mean, these are businesses. Somebody has to take care of them. Why not this one? Tim Rowe, venture capitalist at the Cambridge Innovation Center. Yes, I can see you. Because every student want to be a entrepreneur. Act two, the invention of cheese. 
We um, follow all these business pitches now with an anti-pitch from Kumail Nanjiani. It's very brief, not from the MIT competition, for a new product you may have heard of. Have you guys uh, heard of this new drug called cheese? Like, that's this cheese? Uh, you've heard of it? No. Okay. It's, I'm not, that's like a street name for it. It's like a new drug cocktail called cheese. And I read, all, I read like four or five news reports on it. They were like, there's this new drug called cheese. It's sweeping the nation. Kids in the Midwest are doing it. It's an epidemic. It's a new drug. It's an epidemic. Then I looked up where cheese is. Cheese is Tylenol PM and heroin. So really, it's heroin. It's mostly heroin. Heroin's doing the heavy lifting in this drug cocktail. It's not a new drug. It's mostly heroin. I can't put heroin on pancakes and go, I have a new drug. I call it shake cakes. You eat them every day. If you stop, you'll get the shakes. Don't forget the special shake sauce. It's maple syrup and heroin. Pour that on there. It's not a new drug is my point. It's mostly heroin. I think the last new drug was crystal meth, which you had to make in your bathtub. And if you f***ed up while you were making it, everything would explode and you would die. That's how dangerous that drug is. Just trying to make it can kill you. And you make it just from you get at the store. To make cheese, you still need heroin. Just do the heroin. You already have heroin. Just do the heroin. That's my message to you guys tonight. Just do the heroin. That's my time, guys. Thank you. Okay, kids. Say no to drugs. That's Kamal Nanjiani performing at Comics in New York. You can find his tour schedule on Twitter. And watch him perform every Wednesday night at Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles. Coming up, smoke your way to financial health. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, a million-dollar idea, stories of great ones and less successful ones. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3. Get Rich or Die Trying. Hannah Jaffe Walt has uh, this story of our next million-dollar idea, a very, very ambitious idea. This particular million-dollar idea was to take something generally seen as bad and turn it good. Death. I think it's safe to say, universally seen as a bad thing. So take that and make people see good in it. That was the plan. It started in Prague in 1999 a couple lawmakers began unwittingly laying the groundwork for our million-dollar idea by doing something tedious, something lawmakers always do, talking about the budget. Specifically, talking about raising taxes on cigarettes to cover that budget. Czech reporters then began doing something tedious reporters always do, randomly asking smokers on the street for their two cents. On a busy Prague street, some shrugged, saying at most they would cut down while others admitted once prices rose, they would consider quitting for good. I guess I'm going to have to quit. What can you do? I'm a pensioner, and it really hits my pension check. I've already reduced the number I smoke to only 10 a day. Definitely it's a good thing. I'm for it. When the prices go up, it will force me to consider whether I really want to put my money into cigarettes instead of, for example, sport. 
You know those dog whistles that only dogs can hear? This kind of man-on-the-street news clip where people are casually throwing around the words quit and put money somewhere else is a tobacco executive's dog whistle. They pay attention immediately, and that attention is undivided. Those smokers in 1999 more than likely smoked Philip Morris cigarettes. The company was the largest manufacturer in the Czech Republic by far, and the largest in the world. And there was something specific about the Czech taxes conversation that got under the skin of Philip Morris executives. It was this. Legislators were arguing that tax increases were necessary because smoking hurt the economy. People get sick from smoking, and in a place like the Czech Republic, with public health care, the government has to pay for that. This particular logic struck the Philip Morris people as bizarre. Not just bizarre, wrong. And so, inspired by accuracy and the threat of taxes, Philip Morris came up with their million-dollar idea. Uh, well, they commissioned a study to tote up the costs and the benefits to the Czech government of its people's smoking habits. Gordon Fairclough covered tobacco for the Wall Street Journal, and he says in its simplest form, the idea was this. Death, death saves you money. The more complicated form, a 28-page economic analysis. Uh, could you just read the executive summary of that study? Everybody just the, the bold, bolded part. The bolded part, okay. Uh, so uh, the beginning of the study says, based on up-to-date reliable data and consideration of all relevant contributing factors, the effect of smoking on the public finance balance in the Czech Republic in 1999 was positive, estimated at 5.8 billion Czech crowns. Quick currency conversion interruption, 5.8 billion Czech crowns in 2000. That's about $147 million a year, coming largely from tobacco-related taxes, but also from other things. So basically, you know, what they're trying to do is tote up here the gains and losses to public finances from smoking. So if you have people smoking and uh, their lifespan is not, a is not as long, uh, you record big savings on housing for the elderly, for example. Um, because people die. You get a lot of die. savings on what you... Because people die. Um, because people die early, you also pay less out in pensions and other social benefits to the elderly. People die early, you don't have to pay health care costs for all their non-smoking-related uh, illnesses that they would get later in life, all of which uh, in this study are seen on the kind of the, the positive side of the, the ledger. On the negative side, you know, you have the costs of uh, fires started by people smoking, falling asleep in bed, smoking, doing other things with cigarettes, the financial implications of people who stop working earlier either, you know, because they die or they get too sick to work. So the state then loses the income tax that they might charge those people. Um, also on the cost side is the cost of treating people for smoking-related diseases and for secondhand smoke. Uh, so the way these consultants tote that all up, it's, uh, uh, you know, people smoking is a net benefit, a uh, net financial benefit to the Czech state of uh, that 5.8 billion uh, Czech crowns. The report is thorough. It begins by laying out its methodology, then later its quantification methods, concluding with a glossary that defines morbidity and mortality. Turns out, who knew, the technical uses of those two words are very different. And then five pages of references. Gordon Fairclough and I spent a long time reading through it together. You don't have to pay the monthly insurance payments paid from the state budget for each pensioner, each retired person. Then you 
multiply that out by the 22,000 deaths due to tobacco smoking in the Czech Republic in 1999 with a nice reference to a uh, an epidemiologist, one of the most famous of the tobacco control epidemiologists there. So this uh, is a weird and, thing. Uh, to get all these numbers to make their argument, Philip Morris had to go to the only people who collect these numbers, their enemies, public health people, tobacco control lobbyists, basically anti-tobacco people. You know, what the tobacco control people would tote up as the harm of smoking, and uh, Philip Morris here is toting up as the benefit to the Czech state. I read the report and couldn't believe that they had put it in writing. This is one of those tobacco control people, Matt Myers. He works for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in D.C., In the years leading up to the Philip Morris study, Matt and a lot of other anti-tobacco people had done some research that told them to ease up on the old smoking is bad for you message and instead focus on a message that seemed like it would be a lot more effective. Tobacco companies are bastards and they're out to get you. For us, a report like this was truly like manna from heaven. This report was a complete gift. The next thing I did was sit down with our communications people and say, what can we do with this? The story ran in the Prague Post. Gordon wrote it up for the Wall Street Journal. It then quickly made it to CBS Evening News, ABC World News Tonight, The New York Times, and USA Today, among many others. Some select newspaper headlines, Death in the Ashes, Tobacco Blows Its Smoke, Smoking Cuts Elderly Costs and Elderly. Matt Myers and several other anti-tobacco people ran their own ad campaign featuring a corpse at the morgue with a price tag dangling off a gray big toe. Let me put it this way. In one fell swoop, it allowed us to counter over $100 million of tobacco advertising, and that felt good. It was worth $100 million. Um, Yes, in, 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 in critical respects, getting our hands on that report allowed us to do, with almost no funds, what the tobacco industry had spent $100 million trying to do. Philip Morris apologized, then apologized again. Top executives repeated that they never authorized the study, that it was done by a Czech subsidiary of Philip Morris without headquarters permission. They issued public statements, such as, All of us at Philip Morris are extremely sorry. No one benefits from the very real, serious, and significant diseases caused by smoking. And their public relations guy in Prague, Alice Janko, did one recorded interview, one poorly recorded interview with Czech radio. We commissioned a study, and it was not about the health policy, but it was a part of an ongoing debate about the economics of cigarette excise tax policy in the Czech Republic. And I must say that Philip Morris deeply regrets any impression from this study that the premature death of smokers represents a benefit to the society. I talked with several Philip Morris people from that time. Not one of them would allow me to record. So here's what I learned. In the midst of the media disaster, Philip Morris set out to make sure this kind of thing never happened again. The company called a meeting in Switzerland. All the bosses from around the world came in, about 15 men, maybe a woman or two were there. No one quite remembers. And at that meeting, the guys from headquarters announced to the room, you are not to talk about the death benefit. Not in your reports, not in public, not ever again. We are not doing this anymore. The group listened to this for a while, and then a single hand rose. Excuse me, but they were the ones saying smoking costs the government more than it saves. Are we supposed to just let that lie? Then there were more hands. Yeah, what do you mean? 
More than one person piped up with, you're asking us to argue with one arm tied behind our back. And most popular of all, in that room on that day. But it's true. What we're saying is true. Early death does save society money. Gordon Fairclough, the reporter with The Wall Street Journal, would go to Philip Morris headquarters during this time for interviews, and he says people really did seem incredulous at the negative response. I I think they become kind of hardened to this. There's a certain uh, psychological distancing that goes on, right, by tobacco executives doing that work and uh, selling this product, knowing that it is in fact addictive and knowing that it has such serious uh, health consequences. And I, I think that some of that allows you to look at a report like this and not think, you know, to the average member of the general public, this is going to seem incredibly callous. It, it must be so strange for them, too, because th- there was such a long period of time where they were denying that smoking killed people. And now finally they're saying, we're acknowledging it. We're, we're, <laughs> right. we're writing the death benefit into our equations and you guys are still giving us crap. That's true. They must. They must have thought that was fairly ironic. That in fact, here they are, admitting that this will end everyone's life earlier, and and then they get <laughs> they get slammed for it. But after that, the tobacco people shut up about the death benefit. They fell in line, and they never publicly mentioned it again. The anti-tobacco people, though, kind of won't let this go. They could have called attention to the study, declared outrage, mocked it, all of which they did do. And then they could have named the whole incident a success and walked away, which, weirdly, they did not do. Instead, anti-tobacco people have spent the last decade trying to prove that the data, not just the moral question of counting deaths on the plus side of an economic analysis, but the actual data Philip Morris was using was wrong. Which, when it comes to this study, seems a little bit besides the point, doesn't it? I mean, these guys clearly won this round, clear Victory for tobacco control people, battle won, but they won't drop it. Instead, Matt Myers, with the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, has been doing his own studies about whether or not smokers save the government money, and his numbers show they do not. What we thought the data showed and what it turned out that the data showed was that tobacco was an enormous net drain on the economy. I think the numbers are very wrong. But it seems like part of the power of your position here is that you get to say, look at those guys measuring, you know, the, the value of your death and the benefit of your death. That's ridiculous. And that's it. But now you are, too. You're also doing your own economic analysis. We're very clear. Efforts to reduce tobacco use have nothing to do with economic costs. They have everything to do with quality of life. So, But you are doing economic analyses. You're, you're doing cost-benefit studies yourselves. We did not start out making that argument. The public health community um, f- began to look at the economic issues only because the tobacco industry argued that as a society, we couldn't afford to reduce tobacco use. We have to respond to the tobacco industry's argument. In other words, they started it. And now it is on. So here we go. Were they right? Does the fact that smokers die early mean that they save the rest of us money? Now, Philip Morris is obviously not the place you would go for an answer to that question. But luckily, it is a question economists ask all the time about smoking and alcohol obesity. And the way they do it is they go through all the costs to society, 
payment for lung cancer treatment. That means everyone's insurance rates go up, more sick days. Subtract the savings to society. Pensions aren't paid out, less spent on nursing home care because people die sooner. And they total it all up, and eventually most economists come to this unsatisfying conclusion. It about evens out. Smokers probably cost society a little bit more than they save by dying early, but only a little. And they more than make up for that cost by paying taxes on their smokes. People like Matt Myers have one main beef with this approach. It doesn't count the cost to the smoker. The fact that the smoker will probably lose four years of his life doesn't count that. Tobacco control people want to count that. They do count that. And when they do, they come to the conclusion tobacco costs society greatly, a conclusion they talk about in advertising and lobbying all the time now. And on the other side, Philip Morris is completely quiet on this front. They don't point out that the majority of economists don't agree with that conclusion. They don't publish their own counter studies, and they don't talk about the death benefit, at least not publicly. They are quiet and watch their million-dollar idea continue to live, just not on their side of the balance sheet. NPR's Hannah Jaffe-Wald is part of the Planet Money team. Planet Money is a co-production of NPR News and our radio show. They bring you economic stories that are not boring on their blog and their free twice-weekly podcast at npr.org slash money. Don't hate the player. Somehow we've gotten this far in the show without anybody trying to make a fortune with an old-fashioned scam or outbetting the casino or beating the odds in some impossible way. Well, let's correct that right this second with this story from Sean Ali. In 1984, Michael Larson appeared on a CBS game show called Press Your Luck. He was just the kind of contestant producers liked. He wore a simple gray suit, nothing flashy. And he had this aw shucks kind of smile, like some guy from Ohio, which he was. Let's meet our second player, Michael Larson. How are you, Michael? Now, Michael, what do you do for a living? Oh, I drive an ice cream truck in the summer. I hope to win enough money here not to have to do that this summer. Do you have it with you today? <laughs> what producers that day didn't know is that Michael Larson had come on to press your luck with a plan, a kind of far-fetched plan to take him to the cleaners. A plan that was months in the making. A plan to get rich in half an hour. 56851 and he's going again. Stop! Stop All his life, Michael was always running some little scam or another. Now, Michael died in 1999, so you're not going to hear about any of this from him. But I talked to his brother, James. Michael was the youngest of four boys. James was the oldest. 
James says even in middle school, Michael got caught smuggling candy bars into class and jacking the prices way above retail. And James says after high school, though Michael was smart enough to go to college, he spent his time looking for easy ways to score. He uh, didn't understand the value of good, honest, hard work and just go and work and do your job and get your pay. He thought those people were fools. Michael's schemes ran the gamut. He started a business under a family member's name and then hired himself as an employee. Then he laid himself off to collect unemployment benefits. He'd watch for banks that would give you $500 for opening an account. He'd open one and wait the minimum time to collect the 500 bucks. Then he'd withdraw the money and do it again under a different name. His house was filled with stacks of newspapers everywhere, in boxes and piles, which he'd scour for possible scams. He never threw anything out. He might need them someday, he'd say. He used to sit at night and watch the TV and tape all these shows that you see on late-night TV. You can make thousands of dollars by doing this or doing that. And he bought into that, very much so. He had a TV in the bathroom, he had one in the bedroom, he had one in the kitchen. He would just carry him in. This is Michael's former common-law wife, Teresa Bertram. He had like 12 in the living room, lined up on the walls. They were the old consoles, and um, he would have one sitting on top of it and the other one sitting on top. And we had an entire wall full of 19-inch, 25-inch televisions. And he would watch them all at once. Got so hot back here, it peeled the paint off the wall. Teresa says she had a tough time explaining this TV business to visitors. Usually she'd just tell people Michael was straight up crazy. But Teresa says he was actually methodical with his TV viewing. He tuned each TV to a different channel. The idea was to watch for anything that would make him rich. He'd also watch TV ads, infomercials, and of course, game shows. He was intrigued with the game shows, and he wanted to find one that he could do. Michael was convinced that someone smart could find loopholes in game shows that average people missed. So he'd videotape them all day and play them back in the evening. Teresa says sometimes he'd stay up all night, fast-forwarding, rewinding, pausing, and rewatching. Especially press your luck. I remember I was in the kitchen, and he yelled for me to come into the living room, and he was real happy, and he's excited and he says I've got it I figured it out to understand what Michael was so excited about you have to understand how press your luck worked if you don't know the show or remember it maybe you've heard its catchphrase big bucks big bucks no whammies three contestants would take turns at the show's big game board it was like a huge monopoly board with squares around the edge when a player took a turn a light would bounce all over from square to square in no particular order until a player would press a big red button and the light would stop. If they were lucky, that square they landed on would have a prize, like a vacation trip or money. But if they weren't lucky, they'd hit a whammy and they'd lose all the prizes, the money, everything. All of this sounds simple enough, but here's the thing. To you, to me, and to the rest of America, the light on the Press Your Luck game board moved randomly. Michael knew we were wrong. Michael figured out that really, there was nothing random about that game board. The light always moved in one of five patterns. He was memorizing the patterns. Um, He wrote some stuff down. He took little notes. 
and then he started doing the uh, VCR and put, hitting the pause button. He would show me in there because he got real excited then. He like, watch this. I can stop it every time where I want to. Michael spent months learning to push his VCR pause button at just the right moment. Always on a prize, never on a whammy. Again, here's his brother, James. When Michael told me he was going to go to California, I didn't think he had a chance. I thought he'd get out there and find out that it's not as easy as you think it is. And so I said, good luck, but don't call me for bus money to get back. Which brings us back to the show. Michael Larson. How are you, Michael? Now, Michael, what do you do for a living? Oh, I drive an ice cream truck in the summer. I hope Michael took his seat on Press Your Luck on May 19th, 1984. Watching the tapes, his gray hair is slicked back, receding a bit. His beard is halfway to gray. He looks nervous. Well, Michael, you want to earn enough money so you don't have to deal with the ice cream truck. Right. You just want to eat the ice cream, though. No, I've done enough of that, too. (laughs) You've kind of OD'd on ice cream, right? Well, hopefully you won't OD on money, Michael. Best of luck to you. It was, for me, a very, very routine day. Darlene Lieblick-Tipton was in the control room with the director and producers. Her job was to monitor the game and make sure everything was fair and square. I am looking at the same monitors that the director is looking at, so I see all the camera angles, all the shots. It's actually the best seat in the house. Darlene says at first, Michael Larson didn't look like much. I'm going stop! He got away. Right here, after getting a whammy on his first spin, Michael shakes his head, grits his teeth, and forces a smile. He looks unsure of himself. On his next turn, he concentrates before hitting the red button and lands on $4,000 in an extra turn. Sure, he smiles, but more than anything, he looks relieved. After that, he gets more confident. Turn after turn, he racks up more and more money. By 18 grand, he reels back in his chair. At 21 grand, he waves his fist above his head. By 28 grand, Michael's literally bouncing in his seat. He's on a roll, and Michael, the host, the audience, everybody, they're all getting into it. It wasn't unusual for contestants to go on streaks. It was kind of the way the game was designed. After about, oh, I don't know, five to ten spins of the board, that's when it started to become obvious to people that he was hitting the same prize in the same square just about every time. And that's skill. That's not random, and it's not luck. He could aim and hit, which we didn't think was possible, and he continued to do it. He's going again. Nobody else had ever done it that way. Everybody else had played it virtually like a slot machine. You just hit the button, and it stops where it stops. He had it down to a skill, a fine art. I've been in the booth for thousands of episodes of game shows. Never one like that. First, the booth got very quiet, and then there was an, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, Michael. It was, what do we do? What do we do? What's happening? People were turning to me saying, can we stop this? He wasn't breaking any of the rules of the game. I could not stop the game. He was playing it 
according to the rules set out. We had no rule against what he was doing. He beat us at it. We have to let it play out the way it plays out and see what happens. Michael Streak had gone on so long that he busted the show's half-hour format. The host did an impromptu interview to add time so the episode could be stretched into an hour-long special. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the money, Michael? Uh, invest in houses. Real estate? Yes, real estate. And not drive an ice cream truck? That's right. Uh-huh, but That's right. By the end of the show, Michael Larson had won a total of $110,237. Michael had shattered records that day, and not just for Press Your Luck, but for any American game show. He'd won more than anyone ever had in a single episode. So congratulations, spend it wisely, and get your daughter a lovely birthday gift. I was happy for him, but I was worried that he might squander the money in some way. Again, Michael's brother, James. Well, yeah, I tried to get him to look at some reasonable investments that maybe buy some real estate, and uh, he just put it into the bank, which is, I thought, a very wise move. Then after a couple of months, he took some of it out. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to win this contest that they have on a radio station in Dayton, and you have to get a certain serial number. Every day they would give a serial number out on the radio, and if you could match that serial number on a $1 bill, then you won $30,000. Again, Teresa, Michael's former wife. That intrigued him to, well, I should be able to do that. I got more $1 bills than anybody else around here. So it took him over two weeks, and it took him uh, five different banks to get $100,000 and bring it in. He was bringing it in uh, like every other day in a burlap bag, and he's even carried it in in a green trash bag, I mean. Uh, the Federal Reserve puts $1 bills in $4,000 packets on a piece of little thin balsam wood, and it's shrink-wrapped. And we had like six of those under the bed. You walk into our bedroom, you could see them all lined up under the bed. They also stacked hundreds of dollar bills on TVs, VCRs, the stairs, and just about everywhere else. After they had the hundred grand, they closed the shades and they hunkered down. We would sit and go through this money looking for these serial numbers. Uh, You had a few days to turn it in, you know, so we had several numbers we were looking for. It took us a week to go through half that money, literally go through it, because, you know, you have to eat and bathe and do other things. Day after day, Michael and Teresa sorted the money into grocery bags and piles. They weren't finding the numbers that matched the ones announced on the radio, so Michael put half the cash back in the bank. That left $50,001 bills sitting in trash bags, hanging out of drawers, and falling out of closets. They were exhausted, so one night they took a break. We went to a Christmas party about 8 o'clock that evening, 7, 30, 8 o'clock. And we were there for a long time. Um, When we got home, 
When we got home, it was near one o'clock or something. The back door was kicked in and, you know, it's cash is gone. The first thing he asked me uh, was, did I take his money? I said, no, I didn't take your money. I was with you. Well, you had somebody do it. No, I didn't have anybody do it. To this day, this robbery has never been solved. But at the time, Michael was convinced Teresa had something to do with it. The police questioned Teresa several times. They turned up nothing and gave up. Michael didn't. He kept watching me uh, real close at night. I mean, he would come in and just stare at me and stuff. And I I just had a feeling he was going to try to kill me. Yeah. He was going to put a gun to my head at night while I was asleep. He would come in and stand and just stare at me. And it gave me the creeps really bad. Um, So one day I just decided that um, while he ran to the store... And that's when I got my kids and left and went to a hotel, ordered a couple of pizzas, and we just stayed there, and I called him and told him to get out of my house. After this point, Teresa and James say their picture of what Michael was up to is sketchy. Here's what we do know. Michael moved back to his little hometown outside Dayton, Ohio, and he found a new girlfriend. In 1995, nine years after Michael's big win, Michael and this girlfriend suddenly fled Ohio. Teresa and James later learned why from federal investigators. The pair was caught up in a huge scam that combined a pyramid scheme, fake investments, and Indian lotteries. Altogether, 20,000 people were conned out of $3 million. It was also the first major internet fraud that the Securities and Exchange Commission ever investigated. The SEC and the FBI hunted Michael and this woman for almost four years until 1999, when Michael died in Florida from throat cancer. Teresa says even today, she has bad feelings about how Michael treated her. After all, he accused her of taking his money, and when Michael ran away from the feds, he left behind a son he'd had with Teresa. Because of that, it's easy to get her to say bad things about him, about the kind of person he was. That makes this one thing she said kind of surprising, which is that it actually bothers her when sometimes people say he cheated Press Your Luck out of money. They call what he did a scandal or a scam. I will say the game show is one thing he did do that was honest. He didn't cheat. There's no cheating to memorizing something. He sat here for six months and studied it. That was pretty amazing. But Michael's brother, James, still has mixed feelings about Michael's performance on Press Your Luck more than 25 years later. Well, I feel that by winning the game show, that was the start of his downfall. Him winning that large amount of money convinced him in his own mind that he could uh, trick anybody, that he could do just about anything. I asked him if there was some way for him to go back and change what happened, maybe rig the game so Michael would have lost on Press Your Luck. Would he do it? James says no. He's glad Michael won. He just wishes his brother had been a different person. The kind of person who could just be happy with what he's got. Uh, <laughs> Michael, when you had thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, why what what was in your mind? Why did you keep going? Well, two time? things. One, it felt right. And the second was I still had seven spins, and if I passed them, uh, that was a lot of spins to pass, seven. And you felt it. 
Sean O'Lee in Chicago. Our program today was produced by Robin Simeon and me with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Manivar, Lisa Pollock, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Seth Linz, our production manager, Emily Condens, our office manager, music help from Jessica Hopper, production help from Mickey Meek. Mina Hochberg helped produce our story about Vietnamese sandwich shops in Brooklyn. Special thanks today to Brent Ridge, Josh Kilmer Purcell, John Hall, Garth Roberts, Doug Plummer, Edna Pitlack, and Aaron Dalton. Also, Averbach Transcription. In the years since we first broadcast this show, all three sandwich shops that we talked about at the top of the show have changed their menus, and they're all still there. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Ms. Terry Malatia. Who knows? You still don't have your weekend plans totally sewed up. You don't know exactly what you're going to do still. He has a suggestion. Just do the heroin! You already have heroin! Just do the heroin! I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Well, I need Public Radio International.